Good morning, loved ones. I'm so happy that we have this time that we can share together. And as you can see, we are back on location today at Hickory Rock. And if this is your first time joining us, allow me to introduce myself and to welcome you. My name is Charles. I'm the pastor here at Hickory Rock Baptist Church in Lewisburg, North Carolina. And it's my prayer that in our time spent together today in God's word, that it will help you in your walk with Christ. So would you join me in a word of prayer and then we'll jump into our text today. Day from the book of Colossians. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for Christ. And Father, I pray and ask that you will allow us to have open ears and open hearts, that you will allow us to sit under the authority of your word, that we will cling to it, and that we will hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. And so we can walk with you more humbly, more faithfully, more joyfully, and more obediently. Lord, would you just pierce our hearts now? And again, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today, loved ones, we're going to continue in our study of Colossians. And today, we're going to be completing chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 15 and go through verse 29 of Colossians chapter 1. And while you're turning there and uh, uh, getting ready for this text, I want to start today by telling you about two things I see that we love as people. I know we have many passions, many loves, many things that we really enjoy doing as people, but there's two things that I think we love more than anything else. Maybe I'm speaking only for myself because I know I love these two things, but I also see a lot of other people who love these things as well. I believe as people, we really love to debate and to compare things. We love to debate or argue and to make different comparisons about things. And quite often, we love to combine these two things into one event. We love to have debates or arguments over things we are comparing. And we do this all the time. How many times have you ever said or maybe have heard said that they just don't make things now like they once did? That's a debate. That is a comparison. Maybe you are an amateur or a professional historian and you have a passion for arguing or debating the different policies of different politicians or making the case for why somebody was a better president than someone else. That is a comparison. That is a debate. Maybe you're a fan of music and you feel very convicted about one thing, uh, a certain genre, a certain duo, and you really love debating why, for instance, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are a better songwriting duo than, say, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. We do these things all the time. And that's not even to, uh, scraping the surface with how often we have such debates when it comes to sports. When it comes to sports, we debate ad nauseum over who was a better player, who was a better quarterback, who had a better championship run. These debates go on and on and on. And you often hear, especially when it comes to these sports debates, a phrase of the greatest of all time. We really love to figure out who was the best to do a thing, who was the greatest center fielder, who was the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. But when it comes to history and sports and music and other numbers of things, we have to understand that these debates are endless. 
and that it's impossible for us to come to any sort of satisfactory answer. These debates really have no answers in themselves. And as long as we're talking about things that are of lesser importance, like sports, music, history, politics, it's okay. We can live with that tension. We don't need firm, immovable answers to those questions and those discussions. But there are other areas in our lives where we cannot live with that kind of tension. There are other questions that we need solid answers to. There are debates that must be resolved. There are some issues that simply must be Settled. One such matter is the issue of our sin and our standing before God. We need a clear, definitive, objective answer to that. We need to know if we have been forgiven, if we have been made clean. We need to know if we have been redeemed. We need to know who can save us if we are incapable of saving ourselves. And at the end of the day, we need to know beyond any shadow of a doubt, that there is someone big enough, powerful enough, holy enough to save us and to free us from sin and from our separation from God. We need to know that we have a hero who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And here in this text today, Paul is letting us know that in Jesus, we have just that. Paul is here showing us today that Jesus is the greatest of all time, period. The greatest, the most supreme, the everything, the end-all, be-all of all creation. And in addition to that, in addition to seeing the unequaled supremacy of Jesus in this passage today, Paul is also going to remind us of the great things that Jesus has done in us and the great things that Jesus is doing through us. And so let's take a deep dive into this text today. Let's read First Corinthians, excuse me, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 29. And let's look at how awesome Jesus is. In verse 15, it says this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21 once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he, Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 
This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. So loved ones, what we see here at the outset of this text in verses 15 through 20 is one of the most beautiful and theologically rich depictions of Jesus in the New Testament. And in this Christ hymn, as it is often called, we see Paul articulate for us the unequaled supremacy of Jesus, how Jesus is the central focus, the end-all, be-all of all creation, of absolutely everything. And Paul presents this to the Colossians and to us today as well so that we will know precisely who he is describing for us in verses 13 and 14. If you remember last week, we looked at those verses and in verses 13 and 14, Paul reminds us that we now live in the kingdom of God's Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Well, beginning here in verse 15, Paul is describing further for us who that Son of God is. Who exactly is this Jesus in whom we are in? And I believe that there are three big picture takeaways from this Christ hymn. The first one that we need to camp out on for a moment is this. Jesus is the absolute authority in heaven and on earth because he is God. Jesus, as Paul tells us, is the visible enfleshment, the incarnation of the unseen God. Now, just think about this for a moment. This is what Paul is telling us. He's saying that the very God who created everything at the beginning in only six days, the very God who spoke all of the universe into existence, that same God came here to earth in the form of a man, in flesh and in bones, as the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus is the one who created everything. Everything you can see, everything that you can't see. And with that, Jesus is the one who is sustaining everything. Paul reminds us that Jesus is above all the powers and the authorities of this universe because he is the one who created those things, number one, but secondly, because he is the one who has the right 
to rule. Paul tells us that Jesus is the firstborn over creation. That does not mean that Jesus was created. It doesn't mean that he was the first thing created. We know that Jesus was before all things, that he existed forever eternally. What Paul is telling us here by him being the firstborn of creation is that he has the right to rule. Think about the line of succession in a royal family. The oldest son takes the throne. That's exactly what Jesus has here. And because he has the power and the authority to rule over creation, that means that Jesus is the one who allows governments to rise and fall. He's allowed the one who allows empires and dominions to appear and disappear. He is the one who brings order and meaning and rhyme and reason out of the chaos of the cosmos. And with that, he is the one who is holding everything together. The very universe itself finds its purpose and its meaning in Jesus. And just so we don't forget, Jesus was before all of these things. He existed before any of these other things were created. He was the one who was when everything else was not. And just so we don't miss Paul's point, let's go ahead and say it together. Jesus is God. And as such, he is supreme and he has no equal. Big picture takeaway from this hymn number two is that Jesus is the absolute authority in the church. Now, in verse 18, Paul reminds us that Jesus is both the head of the church, meaning that he, he is her leader, he is its ruler, but he is also the source of the church. He is the, the beginning or the origin of the church. Think about it this way. In the very same way that God created humanity out of the dust of the ground, Christ has created his church out of the peoples of the world. And he created the church and he has the right to rule over the church because he is the one who died for her. He died to defeat the grave, to set his people free. And because of that, he now has the authority to rule over the church. We must remember this simple fact. This is Jesus's church. It's not my church. It's not the people's church. If we make it anyone else's church, loved ones, then we are in error. None of us died for this church. None of us shed our blood to create it. We might spend a lifetime putting money in the plate, but that doesn't buy us any special privilege or prominence in the church. Christ alone is the head of the church. And given everything Paul has told us in these verses, that he has first place in everything, that he was before all things, that he is the firstborn of creation, that he is the firstborn from the dead, we have to understand that we get our marching orders from Jesus, not the other way around. Lastly, big picture takeaway number three is that Jesus is absolutely our only hope for salvation. Paul reminds us that it pleased God to have all of his fullness dwell in 
Jesus. And we saw just a moment ago where Jesus is the visible image of the unseen God. This is very much the other side of that coin. Paul is reminding us here that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And because God's fullness dwelt in Jesus, Jesus then becomes the perfect intersection between heaven and earth. Jesus is the bridge that spans the chasm between God and humanity. And as such, he is uniquely suited, uniquely fitted to bring about our atonement and our reconciliation. Since Jesus is God, he's outside of our brokenness. And he has the authority to bring peace, to bring uh, healing, to bring reconciliation. He has the authority to pay for our freedom and to reconcile everything to himself. But since Jesus is also a man, that means that he is also able and worthy of being obedient. And it also means that since he is a man, that he is able to pay the debt of death that you and I owed, which Jesus does for us through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Again, something very physical to remind us that Jesus was indeed a physical man. And Jesus alone was suited for this. And Jesus alone can do this. Outside of Christ, there is no other means of this salvation being accomplished. And this is the Jesus in whom we have salvation. This is the Jesus to whom we belong. This is the Jesus that we seek to be walking worthy of. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, how often do we think of Jesus in the way that we see Paul here presenting. How often do we think of Jesus and all of his grandeur, all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of his might? How often do we stop and think about that? Do we like serving and belonging to a big, powerful Jesus? Now, yes, don't get me wrong. Don't hear me wrong when, I, when I'm saying this. Yes, Jesus was humble. Yes, Jesus was the servant of all. But here we are taking a step back and we're looking at Christ in all of his grandeur, in all of his glory. We are reminding ourselves that he is the one who is holding everything together. And with that in mind, loved ones, we have to ask ourselves if that's who Jesus truly is. Do we have an appropriate view of Christ? Do we treat him, revere him accordingly? And we need to remember, we need to understand that it is inappropriate for us to try to dissect any one component of Jesus's identity from the other. We do a disservice to Jesus if all we ever focus on is his obedience and his suffering and his humility. And all the while, we never worship and glorify and revel in the fact that he is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. We do a disservice to Christ if we never acknowledge and worship and proclaim the fact that he is the greatest of all time, the end all, be all. So do we worship and celebrate 
and live for a big, supreme, awesome Jesus. And I think a, the only appropriate question to ask in response to that is this. Why would we not? Why would we not? But as we move into verses 21 through 23, I believe it's worth stating that even if Jesus hadn't done what Paul was describing for us in verse 20, even if Jesus had not yet reconciled all things to himself and made peace uh, through, to the world through his blood, even if Jesus had not done that, based purely on what we see in verses 15 through 20, we know that Jesus is still worthy of our worship and of our love and of our affection. Everything in verses 15 through 20 still proves that Jesus is God and we must revere him. But we also know that Jesus has done all of this. He has reconciled all things to himself. He has made peace between us and God. And in verses 21 through 23, we see what Jesus has done specifically for each and every one of us. Paul reminds us that we were separated, we were alienated, we were ostracized from God, and we were hostile and opposed to God and our minds, and that this was de uh, demonstrated and revealed in how we lived and through our actions. But because Christ is all-powerful and all-supreme, because he is able to reconcile all things and bring peace to this world. We know that he made things right for us, that he brought our chaos and our evil back into harmony with him by means of his death, his physical death. And again, this is just reminding us that there is no redemption or salvation apart from Jesus's death. And Jesus did this. He suffered and bled and died so that he might present us to himself as holy and faultless and blameless. This is what Paul is saying. I want you to listen to this. Jesus is the creator God, the one who made us. And he saw us languishing without him. He saw us dying in sin, un unable to come back to him. And so he entered into this world. He entered into our brokenness and our suffering as one of us so that he could defeat the thing that was killing us. He came here to defeat that thing so that he could set us free and bring us back to himself. And now, after dying for us, after setting us free, after saving us, after cleansing us, Jesus is now setting us before himself. Literally, it says there in the Greek that he is bringing us near to himself. And he's bringing us near so that we can be holy and faultless and blameless. He makes us like him and he brings us near to him so that he can make us his own. And that is what Christ has done for each of us. This is forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption and salvation. 
This is being rescued from the kingdom of darkness and being brought into the kingdom of light. And this is something that I, I witnessed this week for myself. This week I was in a prison nearby leading a Bible study with a group of men who are now becoming missionaries in the prison system. They have been so transformed by Christ and by the gospel. And Christ is so powerful that even all of the evil that was once in them is now powerless. And they have been made children of God. And this is all incredible and beautiful. But look at what Paul tells us in verse 23. He tells us that we will be presented before Christ as holy and faultless and blameless if indeed we remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and do not shift. Away. Now, Paul is not saying that we can lose our salvation. He is not saying that there is something that we can do that will undo everything Christ has done for us. If I could lose my salvation, loved ones, then by default, that means I could have earned it on my own in the first place. And if I can earn my own salvation, then why do I need Jesus? Paul is not saying that at all. If we are saved, loved ones, then we are always saved. But what Paul is saying is this. If you have experienced this life-changing transformation, if you ex have experienced the power of Christ in your life, then you have the duty and the responsibility to choose faith every day. Day. You have the responsibility to hold fast to Christ. You must wake up every day and choose to walk a life that honors him. Jesus's divine provision does not negate your human responsibility. But loved ones, let's be reasonable. Let's think about this. Let's be very honest about this. If we have experienced Jesus's power, if we have been transformed and made new and reconciled and made clean, if we are truly living under his authority and we recognize that he is the supreme authority in all of the universe, loved ones, if we recognize all of that to be true, how could we not hold fast to the faith? How could we not seek to stay grounded in him? How could we not seek to walk worthy of him? It makes me think of what we talked about last week, how we looked at the Johnny Cash song, I Walk the Line, uh, and made a comparison to this passage. And if you remember the refrain in that song, I Walk the Line, goes something like this, because you are mine, I walk the line. Well, for us as believers, as followers of Christ, as people who are in Christ, it's not because you're mine, I walk the line. Loved ones, it's because we are his that we walk the line. If we are truly in Christ, then we are going to want to seek with everything we do to bring honor and glory to him. We cannot help but walk worthy of him. <clears throat> but depending on where you might be in your walk right now, this might raise a couple of questions for you. You might be examining your line walking. And you might realize that something might be off. Something might not be quite right. And there are, as I see it, only two explanations for this, only two reasons why this might be the case. 
Explanation number one is simple. <clears throat> it's because you still live in a fallen, sinful world. And it's because you still have sinful flesh. Yes, you have been redeemed and restored. Yes, you are in Christ. Yes, you seek to please God with every fiber of your being and to walk worthy of him. But loved ones, sin still happens. You wrestle with it. I wrestle with it. Every other believer who has ever lived wrestles with it. And if we're being honest, there might be a time here and there where sin still gets the upper hand on us, where it still gets the better of us. But here's the important difference. If you are walking a, a way that is honoring Christ, if you are walking worthy of him, if you are walking the line, in those times when sin gets you down, you get back up again and you go straight to Christ and you live a lifestyle that is characterized and defined by repentance. You see what you've done wrong and you repent. You go to Christ, you confess, you ask for forgiveness and you keep pushing forward in faith. Yes, you might stumble. Yes, you might fall. But because Christ is in you, in you and him, you keep getting back up and you keep pushing forward. Option two isn't as hopeful. Option two is that instead of simply stumbling here and there in your walk with Christ, you are instead willfully disobeying and willfully and intentionally walking however you so choose. You have decided for yourself that you are the captain of your fate and the master of your own soul, and you're going to do things your way. And if this is the case, loved ones, if you're just going to get around to doing things Jesus's way whenever you happen to feel like it, I need you to understand something, and I need you to hear me when I say with every ounce of love I can muster that if this is where you are right now, then dear heart, you are not in submission to Christ. And more tragically, you are attempting to be your own God and to put yourself above Jesus. And how sad and how foolish this is, because in doing this and making yourself your own God and refusing to submit to Christ, you are denying yourself the salvation that he can give you because you are denying Christ the submission you owe him. And let's get one thing clear. If there's anything that we understand from verses 15 through 20, it's that we owe Jesus submission. We've already established that. So loved ones, are we in the habit of submitting to Christ and walking the line for his glory? Or are we living only for our own glory? Now, finally, in verses 24 through 29, we see Paul talking about his present preaching and teach, uh, work preaching and teaching the gospel and how he is rejoicing uh, to suffer because it means that the gospel is spreading and how he is doing everything he can to make the mystery of God known uh, that had previously been hidden, how he is preaching to everybody the mystery and the hope and the promise of Christ and the gospel. And Paul concludes in this passage by saying that he and others wish to present all the believers that they are working with as mature, ripe, completed 
believers in Christ. And then Paul ends in verse 29 with a verse that I find to be absolutely beautiful. He says, I labor for this, meaning for the gospel to spread, for to proclaim Christ, to help these believers grow in maturity. He labors for that, striving with Christ's strength that works powerfully in me. See, Christ has called Paul to this task. And Paul understands beyond any shadow of a doubt that he can only complete this task through Christ's power and provision. But here, loved ones, I really want us to see something, and I want something to be very clear for us. Even though Paul is speaking about his own ministry here, he is also spelling out for us what you and I and every other believer is called to be doing. And I see here in these final verses four ministries, four steps that you and I and all believers are called to carry out. We see, first of all, that we are called to rejoice even in our suffering, meaning that whatever we experience, whatever we might be dealing with in every situation, we choose joy. And we cling to the hope that the God of the universe, the God who has created us, the God of heaven and earth knows us and that he has saved us and has adopted us to be his children. And so long as we have life, we know that God is not done with us. So regardless of what we might be facing, we rejoice. Secondly, we see that we have been called to proclaim the mystery, meaning that we have are sharing the gospel, that we are teaching, talking, helping others see the hope that we have in Christ, sharing our faith with people that we encounter. We tell other people the hope of the gospel, that a Savior has come from heaven to rescue and redeem everyone and to bring them back to himself. Thirdly, we see that we are called to strive for maturity, meaning that we seek to grow in holiness, to continue growing and bearing fruit, to become wiser believers, to be filled with knowledge and spiritual understanding. We're not content for just being in the spiritual toddler's class forever. We want to grow and develop into the people that God desires us to be. And we do this for ourselves, for our own benefit, yes, but we also have to do this together because the church cannot grow if we are not growing as individuals. And furthermore, we have to do this together. We cannot do this apart from one another. And so, loved ones, if you're thinking to yourself today, I have a hard time rejoicing. Maybe it's not easy for you to rejoice in every situation. Well, guess what? What does Christ want you to do? He wants you to find another brother or sister, someone who's mature, someone who has learned how to rejoice in all things, and he wants you to go and learn from them. Maybe you're thinking to yourself that you have a hard time sharing the gospel. Well, guess what? Go find another wiser, more mature brother or sister who has learned to do that thing and learn from them. Do you feel stuck in spiritual immaturity today, brother or sister? Guess what? There are wiser, more mature brothers and sisters that will love to teach you and show you how to grow and how to become more 
mature. This is all very much tied to the idea that we looked at last week, that if we truly love each other, we're going to have to seek to help each other grow. We're going to have to pull one another toward holiness. If we love Christ, then we're going to want to grow in holiness to honor him. And if we love each other, we're going to want to help each other grow in holiness as well. Lastly, we see that we are called to labor faithfully, meaning that we have to do this each and every day. We wake up, we rejoice, we proclaim the mystery, we labor faithfully, we strive for maturity, and then we do it all over again. We do this again and again and again until it becomes ingrained in our minds and become until it becomes part of our daily routine, our habit. We do this until it becomes part of us. I'm told that the great basketball coach, Dean Smith, formerly of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, late in his life, he suffered terribly from dementia. His mind was gone. He was unable to communicate. And it was just a very tragic thing to see him dying so slowly in that way. But I'm told that even in the final days of his life, that if you put a basketball in his hand, that he would begin moving around and attempting to pass the ball and attempting to draw up plays and communicate plays and to give instruction there. He did this thing because deep down inside, those movements, those activities, those actions were hardwired to his DNA. They were part of who he was. He was doing it without even thinking about it. Loved ones, the same should be true of us when it comes to rejoicing, when it comes to proclaiming the mystery, striving for maturity and laboring faithfully. We have to do these things until they are a part of us. And yes, it's easy for us to get on board and support the fact that Christ is supreme and unequaled. It's easy for us to get behind the fact and support the idea that he has done great things through us Yet we have a hard time being so enthusiastic when it comes to admitting and seeing that Jesus is continuing to do great things through us, meaning that he wants us to be involved in working, meaning that he wants us to be put to use. We have to remember, dear hearts, that ministry is not solely the work of the pastor. It's not solely the work of the deacons. It's not just for the spiritual elite who really get it and everybody else is off the hook. We have to remember that we are the church and that ministry is the work of the church. And as the old children's nursery rhyme goes, the church is not the building, but instead the church is the people. And if you are part of a church, then you must be part of ministry. And so my question for you today is this, loved ones. If you are watching this and you are part of a church body somewhere, and yet you are not involved in some ministry component of that church body, why not? Why are you not? If you are a blood-bought member of Jesus' body, then you are expected to be doing his work. Jesus didn't save us so that we could sit around and wait for heaven to come. He saved us so that we could actively be doing the work that he has left for us to do. 
So we have to remember that there are no bench warmers in the church. If you are on the team, Jesus expects you to be in the game. And so my question for you today, loved ones, is are you ready to get in the game? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. And Father, I pray and ask that you will help us to be involved in the ministry that you have set out before us, that you will allow us to submit ourselves to you and allow us to be used by you for your glory and for the advancement of your church. Would you help us to be the people you've called us to be? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.